This is an ABC podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Summer Hack Podcast. And when we're looking back at the biggest stuff that Hack's covered over the past year, really, it doesn't get any bigger than our Who's Gonna Save Us podcast. For the first time, this was a pod about climate change with some answers. Like, honestly, how often do you switch off from a climate change chat and actually feel better about the world? Because this is what this podcast offers. Groundbreaking stuff... And one of the brains behind it was the host of Who's Gonna Save Us and Hack's brilliant reporter, Joe Lauder. She's with us now. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dave. Who's Gonna Save Us? Years in the making. Like, we've been talking about this for so long. It must have felt so good to finally get it out there. Yeah, it was really exciting to release it. And one of the things. Like, I don't know if people know we had a pandemic the last few years, which meant that we couldn't make the podcast for, like you said, a couple of years from when it was first pitched in 2019. And that was frustrating in a lot of ways. But actually, I think we made a better product in the end because the concept changed, like you said, to being a lot more about climate solutions. And it was a way better way to look at it. And I think that even though it was frustrating that it took a while, I think in the end it was definitely worth it to be able to frame it that way. Oh, for sure. And I guess now with a bit of space after it's been released, you can look back and go, oh, I'm really stoked with the direction it took because we are hearing people do want more solutions-based journalism. They know about the problems. They want to hear what we can do about it. What has been the response, Joe? Like what have listeners told you about, uh, you know, their experience listening to it and what they think of it? Yeah, I think people have been really um, kind of inspired by it. And we tried to tread this really diff- um, this really kind of sensitive line around not letting people think and not letting people in power off the hook and say that everything's going to be fine, not letting people think necessarily that everything is fine and we don't need to do anything because we do need to do a lot. But I think the message is really that we don't have all the answers, but we have a lot of them. And so it was really trying to remind people of those solutions that are there Um, A lot of them are, at the end of the day, quite cost effective as well. And so it's just talking about that. It seemed to really hit, I think, as well at the right time for people when they did want to hear that about, like I said, what's next? We know that climate change is a problem. We know it's here now. We know it's pretty bad. What's next? We're about to hear one of the more popular episodes. I mean, they all were really popular, but this one is called Better Call Saul. What's this about? It's looking at the plan or the mission to electrify Australia. So there's a guy called Saul Griffith and he's really been popularising this idea in Australia. So we talked to him. It's a really simple concept, but it's not that easy to implement because there's a bunch of appliances in all our homes and basically every building in Australia that run on gas, which is a fossil fuel, and we need to swap them out. And it sounds pretty straightforward, but when you're looking at retrofitting or modernising every single building in Australia, it's kind of complicated. But it's also kind of cool and it's kind of empowering and it has huge benefits as well. So this is really about Saul Griffith and his really cool idea to electrify everything. Yeah, it's a fascinating dive. Brilliant. Thank you, Joe. You can catch the full series of Who's Gonna Save Us wherever you get your podcasts. But here is Joe Lauder right now with one of the episodes, Better Call Saul. Summer Hack. I love the title of your show. Don't you love it when podcasts keep in the praise that they get? It reminds me of a friend's coffee cup, which says, no one's coming to save us. Like, we have to save ourselves. I think it's a really nice reminder that you can't rely on a government 
to come and save you. You've got to build the government that saves you. You can't rely on a community. You've got to build the community that helps you get the job done. So my answer is we need absolutely everyone. Saul Gripper thinks a lot about who's going to save us. And as you'll hear in this episode, he even has a few ideas of his own about how we might get the job done. But one thing he knows for certain is no one's going to do it alone and that real, genuine climate solutions don't always turn up where you'd expect them to. Like, I think about my cousin who's a tradie and he's going to save us and I think about all of the solar installers and they're going to save us and I think about the people who are going to, on the ground, in your house, in your community, build all the infrastructure and deploy it. It's going to be the tradies and the engineers. <laughs> but don't underappreciate the importance of storytellers in saving us. Honestly, we need storytellers more than anyone right now. We need the storytellers that are going to make it okay for you to get an electric walk. We need the storytellers that are going to make it okay for you to give up the V8. All of those contributions, I think, are critically important. Hey, I'm Joe Lauder, and this is Who's Going to Save Us. It's the show where we meet the people helping us navigate our way to a better future. Later in the show, you're going to hear how a bunch of petrol heads are swapping out fossil fuels for electrons. But first, the man with a plan to rewire the world. It's kind of hard to sum up Saul Griffith in a snappy way. He wears lots of hats. He's an engineer, an inventor, he founded his own R&D lab, and he started the not-for-profit organisations Rewiring Australia and Rewiring America. He's also written two books that you could describe as blueprints for how to completely electrify our homes and cut emissions. You'll soon find out how it all works, but let's just say it's really simple and straightforward and still really hard to implement because it involves upgrading literally every home and building in the country. Or world, actually. Saul's even advised the US President Joe Biden about energy policy, and he played a key role in the US government's recent $369 billion US investment in energy security and climate change. Now, we should point out right at the top that Saul's not the only person to have had the kind of idea that he thinks we should implement, nor is it going to be smooth sailing for this plan. It's one thing to have a big idea, but to implement it is a whole nother story. But if we're thinking about who's going to save us, it's important to listen to the super smart folk with ambitious blue sky thinking, right? Our executive producer, Joel Werner, has this story. Remember travelling overseas and having to fill out a customs form before you enter a country? Yeah, me neither. I like to think you're defined by what you put in the little box at the airport when they have to fill in your occupation. I'm always trying to write engineer and my wife thinks it's hilarious to, <laughs> to put inventor. So the inventor is sort of my wife's doing. Um, why, why do you need to be at the airport? Don't you have a giant mechanical contraption and a leather hat with goggles that you can fly yourself around? Exactly. You know, where's your flying car? You, you know, why are you here? In case you couldn't guess, the whole inventor thing, it doesn't really sit that well with Saul. I think the problem with inventor as a title, I think, is makes you think of Rick Moranis and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Look, personally, I can't see a problem with that. And I don't think people take inventors very seriously. They think you're crazy. So I try to, <laughs> I try to say engineer instead. I may be that crazy, but I try to say engineering instead just so people take me seriously. But before Saul was an inventor, I mean, an engineer, he was a grungy young climate activist. I was questioned by the police after blockading the Sydney Harbour Bridge the night before Australia refused to be a signature on the Kyoto Agreement. I think that was 1997. 
Back in the late 90s, Saul was a young uni student dabbling around the fringes of society. I was part of a wonderful group of ratbags called Critical Mass, which basically was people who like riding bicycles and believe there should be more pedestrian pathways, more cycle pathways in Sydney, more bicycles and clean transportation in the mix would gather every Friday evening and sort of have a party on two wheels and ride through the streets. <laughs> Tell me you're a 90s kid without telling me you're a 90s kid. From time to time, Critical Mass would do more than party on two wheels. Like sometimes they'd catch wind of a political cause and use their bicycle collective to protest in more direct ways, like stopping peak hour traffic by cycling across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. peak hour in the middle of Sydney on a Friday afternoon and I'm surrounded by hundreds of bicycles. I'm on a bike myself. Hundreds and hundreds of bicycles in what amounts to an international event that's happening in over 60 cities around the world as we speak. We are about, believe it or not, donned in blue flags to embark on a journey over the Sydney Harbour Bridge, that icon of dense traffic. This is a global action to voice concern about the decisions being made about greenhouse emissions in Kyoto. These days, Natasha Mitchell is the host of the ABC's amazing science fiction podcast. But back in 1997, she was there in the thick of it, covering the protest for Radio National's environment show, Earthbeat. A young soul was there that day too. And he ended up doing a phone interview with a different type of radio personality one of the commercial radio shock jocks. I guess being cursed with being the person with an agenda who can talk to radio announcers, I was actually borrowed my sister's cell phone and I was doing an interview. We're riding across the bridge and he's spitting venom in his tirade about how I was ruining the lives of all Australians by trying to bring attention to climate change. But spitting venom wasn't the only thing the shock jock did that day. I think he did something that there should be law against in journalism is that he handed my phone number on to the police. So when I got to North Sydney, <laughs> there was, I think, Senior Sergeant Dave Darcy or, or some such had my phone number and called me and we had a chat. Senior Sergeant Dave Darcy ended up being a great guy and became quite an advocate for bicyclists and more bicycle parts. So I don't know, it all worked out in the end. When he wasn't taking part in climate protests that shut down Australia's largest city, Saul was studying metallurgical engineering at uni. His first engineering jobs were at a steel mill in Newcastle and an aluminium smelter in Western Sydney. But before long, he moved to the United States to do a PhD at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. Throughout this time, Saul would like casually keep up to speed with the latest climate science, but it wasn't something that he took any more seriously than that until, as a postgrad, he started a wind energy company called Makani Power. The company was founded around the pretty audacious idea to create, wait for it, airborne wind turbines. So essentially fly wings the size of 747s on very long pieces of string as thick as your arm and generate megawatts of power. You need a lot of money to do a project like that. It's like, you know, our first guess was it'll take 10 years and cost $100 million. I think it took a little bit longer and cost twice as much. But to convince people to do something like that, you really need to have a good case. And it was this moment, pulling together the evidence to justify his outrageous idea to would-be investors, that Saul's obsession with solving the climate problem really took hold. And so 
I really dived into what you need to do to the energy system because the energy system is the main source of the great majority of our climate emissions and dived into looking at what you have to do to get to zero emissions and that was the oh shit moment it's like oh wow this is really hard and it really is a huge amount of engineering it's a huge amount of machines that we have to build and so have really been working on that problem in some manifestation ever since we're at Sol's childhood home today, a lovely wooden house tucked away in a green corner of Bardwell Park, a suburb in Sydney's inner south. And it's no accident we're meeting here. You see, Sol has an ambitious plan to fight climate change, one that could drastically cut Australia's greenhouse gas emissions and see money flow back into our local communities. But here's the thing. A lot of Saul's plan is centred around stuff you can change at home. It's an electrified revolution for the Australian household. Who's this? That's Rumpus. Oh, yeah. And you, you might hear Rumpus the dog scratching around under the table during this interview. Good boy, Rumpus. I work with a wonderful Kiwi called Pete Lynn, and I like the way he said it. He's like, look, climate scientists have done their work. We have to do ours. As engineers, we now need to give the people what they want and fix the climate problem, and that is still possible. We can live modern lives and and have a lot of the things that we all love. This idea is kind of key to Saul's plan, and it's fundamentally different to how we were thinking about climate solutions not that long ago. It was once the mantra that we'd all have to make sacrifices, that modern life and decarbonisation were just incompatible with one another. But these days, Saul reckons we can have our cake and eat it too. I think you first have to have a question of how much of the change that we need is going to come from behaviour change. I used to be more optimistic, so the youth that was protesting on the Sydney Harbour Bridge wanted to believe that it would be all green leafy paths and the commute to school would be through forests on scooters. That I no longer believe is going to happen. I think you roughly have to solve climate change with a recognisable version of what everyone has today and hopefully a better version of what everyone has today. So the question Saul's trying to answer is how do we keep all the things we know and love about life in a modern society and still get to zero emissions? Well, according to Saul, it all starts with the energy market. Who's making the energy and who's using it? There's a supply and a demand side of the energy system. The supply side is the machines that get our energy for us and convert it into the forms that we like. So that's drilling for oil, getting our coal, moving our coal, pumping our natural gas. And then there's the demand side, which is actually where human beings and we all live. And that's our houses, our cars, our heating systems. And according to Saul, we've been focusing too much on one side of the system at the expense of the other. There's been an overemphasis on the supply side. But you have to decarbonise both at the same time. It's a very engineering thing to do, but Sol thinks of the energy system in terms of machines. machines and the thing about machines is you can count them. So if we try to count the number of machines in Australia... There's 100 million machines on the demand side. So... 10 or 11 million homes, each one has 1.8 vehicles, so there's 20 million vehicles. 
Every one of them has a space heater and a water heater and a stove and you start adding up all of those machines that are currently burning fossil fuels, we have to replace them all out with something that will have no emissions. Turns out the only something that we can imagine really that's practical that's going to have zero emissions is to electrify all those machines. This is the key idea in Sol's big plan. When any machine that's using fossil fuels dies because, you know, bolts rust and bearings blow out, we need to replace it with the clean thing. And that clean thing, it's the electric thing. Honestly, you can't separate the supply and the demand and those two things meet in the Australian household, in the Australian small business. So that means we've got to electrify all the cars, you've got to electrify all the water heaters, you've got to electrify all the space heaters. Kitchen stoves need to become induction or electric. You'll need a few more machines because we're going to need some batteries. The cheapest version of the electricity is going to be our rooftop solar, which Australia has had a big success story on. Our small businesses are largely the same, so it's heating our buildings, cooking, they have vehicles. Anyway, you get up to 100 million pretty quickly there. 100 million machines, all on the demand side of the energy system. But really, it's just a few appliances in your house, plus your car, that currently run on fossil fuels and need to be swapped out for their electric counterparts that can run on renewables. The trick, though, is that we need to do this for every single household and every single building in the country. And then we have the other side of the system, where the energy is being made. And then we've got to decarbonise the supply side, which is currently about a million machines. It's our coal mines, it's the LNG facilities. We have a couple of blast furnaces and steel mills. We have a, a couple of aluminum smelters. And so that's a very different set of problems because those are very expensive machines that are bought by companies once every 20 years. What Saul's trying to do is look at the whole energy system and find the quick and easy ways to cut emissions, the things we can do right now. So we've got a million big, expensive machines. We've got 100 million small, relatively cheap machines. And if you try to prioritise the emissions reductions that we can do this decade, however, I think there's a heavy emphasis that we should focus on the demand side. The only place we're going to get those emissions in the Australian economy by 2030 is on the demand side. And what do I mean by that? Like, bluntly, we don't yet have green steel. Bluntly, we don't have green ammonia. Bluntly, we don't have a solution yet for agricultural emissions. And bluntly, green hydrogen isn't going to eliminate any emissions before 2030. And we need to get 50% emissions out of the system by 2030. So the technologies that you can buy today that will eliminate emissions are electric vehicles, electric cooking equipment, heat pumps for water and space heat, and of course, solar and batteries. With the clock ticking on our time to act, Sol says we need to focus on solutions that already exist that we can implement today and not rely on things that might be possible in the future. If we want a target better than two degrees, and we damn well should, we have to electrify every demand side machine as it comes up for replacement. So when your 20-year-old Volvo kicks the bucket, you've got to replace it with electric Hyundai Kona or an electric Polestar or whatever it happens to be. Next time your gas hot water heater kicks the bucket, we need to make it be electric. That's just the reality. And that reality is that to fast track these kind of changes, we're going to have to challenge some long-standing ideas about how our economy works. So people who are 
fiscally conservative or liberal might say, well, you can't do that. That's not the free market. And the easy response is, well, you had 30 years to try and pull the levers on the free market to influence it. That was the idea behind the carbon tax. But it's too late for the carbon tax to now shift markets fast enough to get us to zero emissions for two degrees. So we now need to be interventionist and design those markets actively, figure out how to get us there on time. If this all sounds a bit politically activist, Saul assures me it's not. He reckons it's a sober, objective analysis of where we're at. Saul says cutting emissions all comes down to how we finance it. We need an economic solution as well as an engineering one. As an engineer, (laughs) that's just the reality of our machines. And you can take the politics out of it. If you want to hit the climate target, we need to make sure that our financing systems and economic systems support this transition on that timeline, that we're doing education and training because we still don't have enough of the trained people to manufacture and install all of those machines. We still have to ramp up the manufacturing of all those machines. Globally, we need to increase the production of electric vehicles 10 to 20 times over. Same with solar, same with wind, same with batteries. So we've got to have a massive ramp up of the manufacturing of those things. Then we have to have massive deployment of those things. And that's going to be a financing job. So we have to align our tax incentives and our banking systems to do that. Sol's not just thinking about benefits for the environment. According to him, in 2021, Australian households spent around $5,000 on petrol, diesel, gas and electricity. The impact of the war in Ukraine will push this figure to around $7,000 in 2022. If you could wave a magic wand for an Australian household and have 1.8 electric vehicles in their driveway, an electric heat pump water heater, electric cooking, electric space heaters, solar on their roof, giving them half of the energy they need for all those things, and a battery, they'd actually be saving three to $5,000 a year on energy next year because the electricity is fundamentally just so cheap as a way of doing things compared to the fossil ways at the retail level of the household. But it's the flow-on effects from households that really demonstrate the potential of Saul's plan. If we can make households do better, suddenly whole communities start doing better. I actually think people are underappreciating the possibility for community economic renewal that comes on the back of this, right? So most Australians live in a suburb. Turns out the average suburb has about a 1,000 households in it. Every year, that community spends about $4 million on petrol and diesel. It creates half a job at the local petrol station that's mostly selling sugar and tobacco anyway. It's like three things that can kill you in one store. But if you think about that community, fast forward 10 years, everyone's driving electric trucks and electric jet skis and electric motorbikes and electric cars, and we're producing the majority of the electricity on our rooftops and in the community, that $4 million a year will be staying in the community. And we know just from spending behaviour, 55% of that money will be spent in the local community and that will create a huge number of jobs, not just energy jobs, not just climate jobs, but that'll be paying for newer, better bakeries and the Surf Lifesaving Club gets a new paint coat every couple of years. Like you've got new classrooms going in, you're creating a huge number of local jobs. Like I don't think we've ever really thought about just what a screamingly good thing that will be for every Australian community. We've been 
culturally paralyzed by the fear of losing some coal jobs. And I totally appreciate those coal communities and that we should be trying to help them through the transition. But we've been so obsessed with that, we've forgotten to look on the good side where actually this is going to create a huge number of jobs. They're going to be in every postcode in Australia. So I think we win on all these good news stories and we've just got to start telling them to ourselves and then calling foul on the politicians that aren't supporting this. And, you know, politicians might be wise to support a transformation like this. According to Saul, if communities are doing better, then the whole country's doing better. You know, by 2030, if we just invested in the Australian households as a category to go on this journey and made sure that everyone could buy the electric hot water heater, the electric car, etc. Even though we would have to subsidise them a bit for the first few years, it eventually gets better. And ultimately, Australia would be saving 40-odd billion dollars per year on our collective benefit. So as a nation, it now looks like a slam-dunk investment. You know, for the price of one submarine, we could decarbonise the entire Australian residential sector and our small businesses and get the majority of those 43% of emissions reductions. 43% is the Albanese government's emissions reduction target for 2030. Can you put the gas fire on or else the other one rattles to me? I can't it's freezing. it doesn't work. Oh, it doesn't? No. What's wrong with you? The gas. <laughs> Here we this is one of the practical challenges <laughs> is that there's still an argument in this household. <laughs> Mum versus dad on gas versus electric. Aren't you freezing? I'm freezing. Well, you know. <laughs> so, according to Saul, his big plan is going to save households money, funnel investments into communities, make the nation better off economically, and help save the planet. But there's one assumption that's super tricky to model. It's more difficult than modelling energy systems and economics, and it's the assumptions that he makes about people, that everyone's just going to be happy to electrify everything. So what about the cultural attachment that people have to some of these devices? Like, so um, the person who argues that the electric wok is never going to be as good as the wok that's over the gas flame, the, the guy who's tinkering on his car and like, even though we know that like electric vehicles have great acceleration and all this doesn't want to give up his classic car, but sort of how do you factor in those kind of, I guess, very human connections that people have to some of those machines on, on the demand side of the ledger. I completely appreciate the sensitivities people have. We underappreciate, for example, the brainwashing that the natural gas industry did, really starting in the 80s with all of this clean blue fame cooking with gas propaganda. They wanted you to become emotionally connected with the gas in your kitchen because the only emotional connection you can have with natural gas is in your kitchen. You don't give a damn about the grey machine in your garage that heats your water. You ask an audience, you know, is your hot water heater gas or electric? And they half of them don't know. So the gas industry very consciously made us believe that gas was a great thing to have in your kitchen and a lot of us still believe it. But you can now have electric induction that goes faster for cooking. It uses half the energy and most importantly, it doesn't put nitrous oxide and carbon oxide and other things in the house. So there's a lot of good reasons to go electric in the kitchen. I'm also sympathetic to the classic car people. I own five vehicles whose collective age is over 250 years old <laughs> and I'm quite emotionally attached to all of them by virtue of the fact that my wife has been trying to get rid of at least four of them for 10 years and so far failed. 
But, you know, I don't mind if there's a 68 Monaro still running on petrol for posterity in 2040. There's a steam train that runs through Wollongong where I live on weekends that still toots the horn and it's quite a lovely thing. You know, we're going to keep a few things around historically, but we don't need every Honda Civic and every Toyota Camry to still run on gas. And, you know, I think actually what people love about the cars is the sheet metal as much as anything else. Saul Griffith there with executive producer Joel Werner. And Saul's not the only car guy to be swayed by this instant acceleration, you know, insane speed of electric vehicles. Well, the other side of it is the performance. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um. Whoa. Whoa. And he just um, put his foot down on the accelerator and we... I was like thrown back in my seat. That was amazing. That was by far the fastest acceleration I've ever experienced. I went a 1969 station wagon. <laughs> Honestly, it's like it's like some sort of Batmobile. Okay, maybe it won't be that hard to convince people to electrify their fossil fuel-powered machines. As reporter James Bertil found out, a whole generation of petrol heads are converting to EVs. So I've just pulled up at the address for Unique EVs in Perth. It's um, by a warehouse complex and a um, scrap metal merchant next to the railway tracks. Can't actually see the business anywhere. Going to go and try and find it. I'm at an industrial park in the suburb of Bibra Lake. It's a 15-minute drive south of Fremantle in Western Australia. And I'm looking for Andy or Cameron, these two guys who run a business with a modern take on the classic car. Andy, Cameron? I'm James. There's a bunch of cars around. There's a very old looking beat up VW Beetle, a Range Rover with its bonnet popped open and the engine ripped out, and even a very snazzy looking Porsche. But almost straight away, there's one car in particular that catches my eye. Yeah, so it's like a classic frog green station wagon, very kind of retro look to it. This is an amazing car, Andy. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you describe what we have here? So this is a 1969 Volkswagen Squareback. Pretty rare, not a very popular car in Australia, so there's not many of them around. We've got two of them. Um, so we found it in a paddock, completely rusted out, rebuilt the whole car, went back to bare metal, repainted it, New floor pans, new brakes, new pretty much everything to bring it back up to new. At first glance, this looks like any classic car restoration workshop. But spend a bit of time here and you start to notice the details that make unique EVs a bit unique. So this used to be a fuel tank and storage area. Uh-huh. Right now it's 15 kilowatts of lithium batteries in the front here and then there's another 10 at the back. That's the old fuel filling cap. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's now a, a EV uh-huh. charger. Just looking at that USB little thing there in the boot. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that used to be the oil filling port. <laughs> so there was just a hole there. So we yeah. thought, why well, not? That, that just sums it up, right? There's a USB plug in the old oil filling port. Exactly. So, I mean, these cars are great. The seats fold down flat, so you can sleep in them if you were so inclined. Um, but when you're sat there at the beach and you've had your surf, you can sit in the back, charge your phone up. Yeah, we're trying to use as much of the original car as we can and just repurpose it. I love the idea of just 
like finding an old car in a paddock and converting it into something that is like heaps better than the original and um, kind of giving it a new lease on life. Is, is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, we're essentially recycling these cars. So we're not making new EVs. We're just making really cool, recycled, repurposed, future-proof classics. So this car is amazing to drive. It's quiet. It's powerful. It's almost cost nothing to charge it up. So it's got rid of all the problems that the classics have. We got rid of all the rust. And now it's a new classic car without all of the sort of downsides. And the classic cars are so beautiful, right? There's such, such a wonderful look to them. Well, that's it. I mean, my vision is, you know, going down Fremantle High Street on a Sunday afternoon in the next 10 years and everyone's driving around in electric classics instead of these box cutter copycat cars that all look the same for modern EVs. But the thing about EVs in general at the moment, especially in Australia, is that they might be cheap to run, but they're not cheap to buy. And so you can imagine converting a classic car isn't going to be a thrifty endeavour, even if the savings are huge, in the long run. And the big question is, like, what does this cost? So this installed, registered, bearing in mind we're a turnkey service, so we take the car in whatever condition it's in and we give it back to you as a registered road legal EV, is about 45 grand plus GST. Unique EVs is just one of many companies in Australia doing these conversions, but it's still relatively early days. At the moment, all conversions are bespoke. But Andy and Cameron hope that one day... Soon, they'll have a more universal process. There's actually a lot about classic cars that lend themselves to these types of conversions, especially compared to the idea of converting a modern petrol or diesel-powered vehicle. We focused on classic vehicles initially because they're less complicated. There's less electrical systems in them, or no electrical systems, really. There's lights and horns, which means it's much easier to integrate our systems. And the chassis are sort of rails instead of built into the body, so there's more space and more sort of gaps in these things than you find in a modern car, which are built to maximise space. So we initially are working on classics. I don't think your average Hyundai gets is going to be something that people convert because you can buy something similar to that that's already electric. But when it comes to sort of Range Rover classics or sports cars... I I would love a Volkswagen Beetle EV... Yeah, that's that's so cool. I think that the classics are definitely cooler. (laughs) But the true test of any car isn't standing around talking about it. It's getting behind the wheel, taking it for a spin. Well, can we go for a drive at all? Yeah, Yeah? great. Which car are we going in? Oh, I was hoping you'd say that. I just didn't want to ask. Andy pointed to that 1969 green VW station wagon that we've been checking out. And now we're going to take it for a spin. That's just a phone holder. This reminds me of my granddad's car. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of leathery seat and the quite thin doors. Yep, you know? very thin doors. You know, it's still a classic car. We haven't tried to make it into a modern car. So all the gauges are original. The fuel gauge gives us our state of charge. So we turn it on, start up like you would normally start a car, and the fuel gauge kicks in, and now we're live. Yeah, right. Electric. Speedo's the same. We've left the clock. Okay. Um, there's a small display in here which gives you a bit more information about cell life and voltage. Okay. It's like a little um, James Bond car. You open it up and <laughs> there's a little computer in the glove box. And then it's just the same as driving. Oh my god, it's already started. It didn't make any noise at all. I didn't re- realise you turned it on. 
say so. Normally in a Volkswagen like this age, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to have a conversation without shouting. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a spaceship. <laughs> it's like very, it sounds like very powerful and quiet at the same time. It's amazing to think what the original owners of this Volkswagen would have thought of all this. Yeah, I mean, imagine in the 1960s, you're buying a Volkswagen and, yeah. and it, it's got the potential of doing this. Oh my God. So it, it's quiet, it's nice to drive, there's plenty of power if you want it. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to use it. And it's quiet. It's very quiet. It's hard to describe how quiet it is. You know, you still get the, the feeling that you're driving, you can hear the RPM building yeah. up. It's not silent. Yeah. But it's just different. Yeah. Well, the other side of it is the performance. Oh my God. <laughs> um, Whoa. Whoa. So, Andy just um, put his foot down on the accelerator and we, I was like, thrown back in my seat. That was amazing. That was by far the fastest acceleration I've ever experienced. I went in 1969 station wagon. <laughs> Honestly, it's like it's like some sort of Batmobile. Wow. It's actually really fun. It sort of feels like you're in a go-kart or something. <laughs> it does. Driving these cars original is fun, but it's stressful. It makes you incredibly anxious. Yep. You often find yourself running to start the car, pushing it up a hill or down a hill. Yep. Listening to every sound, wondering if it's something breaking. Exactly. So we've got rid of almost all of that. I could just see so many classic cars being converted. Because you get the best of both worlds, really. You like, really do. And, you know, wow. Amazing. That's the first time I've driven an EV. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Keep, I write all these bloody stories about <laughs> them, but I never get to drive them. Reporter James Pertil there, getting his mind blown with Andy from Unique EVs. Meanwhile, our executive producer, Joel Werner, is still at Saul Griffith's childhood home. Joel's working hard at the moment to get his interview back on track. So, like, let's get back to let's get back to the more serious business. Um, This is serious business. (laughs) Like, yeah, I think you asked the most serious question, which is how do we get the people there? And (laughs) honestly, I think we need to have a a giant collective mea culpa. Like, no one knows how to get to zero emissions. Not even your most righteous extinction rebellion friend down the street really knows how to get the whole way there. And like, I think if we can all forgive ourselves that we're still at that level and that we're collectively going to help each other and we're going to have some fun along the way, that's a lot better messaging than, you know, we're all fucked and there's not much you can do about it. So, I don't know, I think sharing the fun stories is great. And, of course, Saul's right. Storytelling, having fun, it's so important in this space and it's often overlooked, which is kind of why we're here, right? But there's also important business to get back to. We've got to wrap this episode. I have a co-founder at Rewiring America because we're trying to also do this project in the US. And I think he said something very shrewd, which is real change only happens if there is a coalition of the winners. 
meaning the economic winners. So we're not going to get there with some, you know, perfect socialist implementation of the electrification plan. We're going to get there with a whole bunch of entrepreneurs making all of the pieces and gluing it all together and making it a good customer and consumer experience. What does the the young Saul who's like riding his bike over the Harbour Bridge to protest the Kyoto. With like, my what, fist in the air. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. So, so what does young Saul think of that, that, that that's the solution, that the solution has to be profitable? And, and is that the reason that we're finding a lot of action now because people have figured out how to make money off it? When I first started doing a lot of public communication on how to solve climate change. What does the engineering project look like? So 2006, 2007, it was very hard to believe that electric vehicles would get to a price that would make that reasonable. Wind was still very expensive. The generation cost alone was 25 cents per kilowatt hour. Solar was still at 30 or 40 cents a kilowatt hour in those years. And so it was hard to imagine, economically hard to imagine. I think by about 2015, you know, wind at that point was four or five cents a kilowatt hour cheaper than gas or coal generation, solar sometimes as low as three or four cents. Now it's even cheaper. And then electric cars were sort of finally practical and it's now imaginable that that totally works. So I do think these things are economic. But this idea of a coalition of the winners, it has a flip side. If you think about the resistance against climate action, it's the coalition of the old winners, and they don't want to give up their lovely monopoly. And according to Saul, this coalition of the old winners is well organised and it's been playing the game for a long time. I do far too much political work, and I can see that the good side, the coalition of the winners, are not working nicely together and aren't really showing up, and we're being outspent hundred dollars to one by gas industry lobbyists, by coal industry, oil industry lobbyists. And we need the coalition of winners that is going to be the solar installers and the clean electric home builders associations and the electric vehicle manufacturers and the electric appliance manufacturers and the solar panel manufacturers. They all now need to represent as the coalition that has the answers so that they can rewrite the rules, the regulations, the subsidies so that our politics works for this new world. Saul's big idea is built around the Australian household. But if it's going to work, it's got to include every household, not just those that can afford to electrify. Unless we figure out how to bring everyone along, I think the political project fails. It's pretty easy to imagine that you know, the top 10% of houses can probably pay cash to solve this problem for their own emissions. The next 50% can probably get a loan against their mortgage. But like, how do you bring the... of households after that along for the ride and 20% of that is social housing, so that'll need help. But hopefully the coalition of the winners includes groups that really represent the renters, the low-income people, and help them come along on this journey because, you know, I think it's fairly evident in the statement that you don't half solve climate change. (laughs) If only the richest 50% can afford it, we're not all the way there. So we need to really figure out how to do it. And the reality is, it's in fact, low-income households that stand to benefit the most, right? High-income household only spends 2 or 3% of all of their expenditures on energy. It's like negligible. They spend more on alcohol. For the bottom 20% of households, it's 10, 15, 20% of their weekly income that goes on energy. And so they will proportionally stand to win a hell of a lot more if we do this electrification project correctly. According to Saul, you can't downplay just how big a shift we're about to live through. 
one that could have far-reaching implications for years to come. We're about to undergo the largest wealth transfer in history from the traditional providers of energy to the traditional consumers of energy. That's what rooftop solar means. That's what this incredible energy price arbitrage between an electric vehicle and a petrol vehicle is. This could be really good if we allow it. And then that, I think, provides a really strong political and economic incentive to get it right. Because if you're the, I don't, really sit on either side of politics. Whoever, whichever party can figure out how to deliver that will have democratic mandate for a long time. Engineer Saul Griffith speaking with our executive producer, Joel Werner. Who's Gonna Save Us is a co-production of the science team at ABC RN and Triple J Hack. The show is presented by me, Joe Lauder, with reporting in this episode from Joel Werner and James Pertil. Shane Anderson is the series producer, sound design and mixing by Hamish Camilleri, and our EPs are Joel Werner and Claire Bloomer. Thanks to Saul, Pamela and Ross Griffith for letting us into their family home and also Andy and Cameron for letting us into their workshops today. This podcast was produced on Gadigal, Bidjigal and Wurundjeri lands. I am trying to crush some of this year. i got a friend who has a 68 Monaro, which I think is hilarious because I'd probably put the Ford crate motors in it. So then it's a Holden Monaro with Ford motors in it, which would be sacrilegious in Australia, which then makes me want to paint one half of it green with the number 17, the other half red and white with the number 05 on it and kind of could be Dick Johnson and Peter Brock's love child, electric love child. It's like bringing people together. This Absolutely. is what this, this is all this about. Is, this like would actually Ford and Holden finally, working together. It would finally unite the two, <laughs> the two chief religions of Australia. Summer Hack on Triple J.